Morning, Valley Bible Church. Good to see you this morning. We're starting a new study this morning of the book of 1 Corinthians. So we were a long time in John's Gospel, and now we're starting something new. Um, so with that, um, before we read the Word of God, would you join with me as we pray and ask God to launch us this morning and keep our hearts and our minds and our noses in the Word of God and our wills as well. So pray with me. We praise you, Father God, for your love, which is uh, not just deep, but infinite. We thank you, God, that we could never know, even in eternity, the depths of your love and its extent. And so, Lord, we come to you with that truth, knowing that we fall short even today of your love in obedience. But we come through Christ, our Lord and Savior, we're clothed in his righteousness, and we pray that you would accept our worship. We pray that we would give to you our minds and our hearts and our wills. We ask that your spirit would speak through your word and that the spirit of God would use the word of God to make us like the son of God. So we turn to this task of a new study this morning, knowing that There are many months ahead of us, and yet, Lord God, it's a worthy task to go deep into your word and to to seek your heart and your will. So we do that now, and we do so in the name of Christ, our great God and our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. I hope you have your Bibles, and if you do, if you have a, a Bible or something by which you can turn to the word of God, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're just going to look at three verses this morning as we um, begin the study. We're going to give a little bit of a background of uh, the book of Corinthians and the city of Corinth, and then just dip our toe into these first three verses. So, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, and to give honor to the reading of his word, would you please stand as we read it together 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, the Word of God. Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And God's people said, Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. We begin the study that we're titling uh, Truth for the Troubled Church because the church is always troubled, is it not? Uh, it always has been, it is today. Um, there are always troubles in God's church because the church is made up of imperfect people. And some churches have more troubles than others. Uh, there is trouble at Valley Bible Church. We're not, I'm not saying that we're in trouble, but there are always problems that we face. There are always people that struggle. There are always uh, difficulties that we have to confront because we are all sinners saved by grace and we're all trudging along in this process of sanctification. Some churches have more trouble than others. Some churches are further along. 
But every church is troubled, and the church at Corinth was particularly troubled, perhaps as much or more than any other church in the New Testament time. And that's what uh, Paul is uh, addressing in his letter to the church in Corinth, is that there's trouble there, and he's going to present to them truth, truth of the gospel, truth of their calling in Christ, because he wants to call them up out of those troubled waters and he wants to set their feet on solid ground that they would be uh, a church that would give honor and glory to God. So um, this is a new challenge for us. We've spent two years in the Gospel of John and now uh, 1 Corinthians has 16 chapters. We're taking wagers on how long it's going to take because we don't really know at this point. 16 chapters and a lot of the, the stuff is very compact. I don't know how long it will take. But we will do our best to, as we go along, give a a good account of um, what Paul has written. So it is different from John's gospel. John's gospel is the story of the life of Jesus. It's narrative. There's there's dialogue and stories and people traveling from town to town. But this is different. And I want to show you just a uh, a uh, something that we've looked at before about New Testament literature. Um, you've seen this before. If you haven't, maybe it might be new to you. Perhaps it will be helpful. Um, there's a number of types of literature in, in the scriptures. Um, in the Old Testament, we have another type, which is poetry. But in the New Testament, we have history. We have epistolatory literature, which are epistles, the letters. And then we have prophecy. There still is some prophecy in history, and there is some prophecy in the epistles, but the book of Revelation is considered apocalyptic, prophetic literature. But history are the first five books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. The gospel, gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, basically are the story of the life of Christ, the story of his birth and his life and his teaching and his death and his resurrection. Acts, which was written by Luke, is the story of the church, its founding, and its growth, and the planting of churches as it spread throughout the known world at that time. All of that is history because you you have, again, you have dialogue and narrative and stories and places and people and things that are happening. <clears throat> A good portion of the New Testament is uh, are epistles. And the epistles, uh, the word epistle basically means a letter. And there are two types of epistles in the New Testament. Pauline epistles and general epistles. The Pauline epistles are just that, written by the Apostle Paul. <coughs> Pardon me. And those Pauline epistles are Romans, First and Second Corinthians. We're starting First Corinthians this morning. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, Titus, Philemon, and Hebrews. There is some contention as to whether Hebrews was written by the Apostle Paul, but we defer to our elder emeritus in heaven, Dr. Jerry Larson, who always believed that uh, uh, Hebrews was written by the Apostle Paul, and so we'll put it there. You notice that Paul wrote a lot of the New Testament in terms of uh, books, I think that Luke, by virtue of words, uh, ekes it out a little bit, has a few more words than the Apostle Paul, but uh, you can certainly see that the Pauline epistles are a major portion of the New Testament. Then we have the general epistles written by James, 1st, 2nd Peter, or uh, we have Peter, 
uh, John's writings and Jude. Uh, we see John, once again, he wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote these three letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And he also wrote the Revelation. So John is the third most prolific New Testament writer. Um, the epistles of, of uh, Paul, of course, are very, very important. And they are mostly written to a, all of the epistles are letters to churches, most of which address some issue or some problem in the church. In this, uh, we often call these epistles didactic literature because the, the, word, the word didactic means teaching, teaching literature. And so there's a lot of doctrine. They're heavily laden with, with doctrine. Um, and again, like I said, they deal with a lot of problems. And that's the problem with Corinth. There is trouble in the church. So let me just give some background in ter- terms of Corinth, the city. And we, as we go along in our study, we'll give more and more background. So this is just kind of a cursory background to help us uh, um, to begin with. You can see where Corinth is uh, situated. This is Greece. And you have mainland Greece to the north. And that, if you can see where Corinth is, uh, just on this isthmus that goes uh, to just to to the west and the south is the Peloponnesian uh, Peninsula, and you can see that it's divided by just this little isthmus where Corinth is, and um, to to the to the west is Italy, and to the east is Asia, uh, present day Turkey, and so you can see just the way it's situated between Asia and that part of Europe. It was a major trade route. It was an important city for trade. And if you, if we look at the next slide, it shows a little bit closer. You see um, on the west side of the map, you see Corinth down there with that little isthmus, four, about four and a half miles wide. That's, that's the, the distance in the, of that little isthmus where Corinth is. And then you see in the east, Athens... Um, we're going to see in a few minutes when we look at the, the background in the book of Acts that Paul will actually travel from Athens to Corinth. It's about a 50-mile walk, and, of course, that's how he traveled in those days. So he will come from Athens uh, to Corinth. That little isthmus, I want to show you something, that uh, during that, the, the time of, of uh, uh, during the Greco-Roman era, they would uh, 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 ships would come up from the south, and they would take their goods and they would take them across land. Sometimes they would actually take the boats and push them because it was only four miles, and it saved them a lot of time going around the Peloponnesian uh, Peninsula. And uh, so they once they got their goods on the north side, they could. Uh, it was a major trade route to the east and to the west, and the north and the south. In the 1880s, late 1880s, they actually dug out a canal that four miles, and so ships passed through there today. They, I'm sure they would have loved to have had that back in the time of the Apostle Paul, but uh, that's what it looks like today. That little four-mile isthmus has been made into a canal. Corinth was destroyed in 144 B.C. 144 B.C., it, uh, it was a Greek city, but the Romans sacked it, they destroyed it, and it lay barren for 100 years. Corinth was desolate for 100 years. In 44 B.C., Julius Caesar reestablished Corinth 
because uh, he, it was because of its uh, strategic location for trade. He infused a lot of money and people into Corinth. Um, he sent people uh, of his own uh, uh, from the Roman populace, uh, freedmen, those people who used to be slaves. He sent a lot of his veterans, those who were retired from the Roman army. And he sent a lot of uh, people that were involved with urban trades and laborers and artisans because he wanted to establish this city as a major trade city. So with the infusion of this money came many people from many cultures. People came from the east, people came from the west, people came from the north, people came from uh, the south and, and Africa, and it became a very metropolitan city, multicultural in every sense of the word. Um, in 144 B.C., before it was destroyed, it was known as probably one of the most decadent cities in the entire world uh, because of the, um, um, the cult of, um, of Aphrodite, the goddess of uh, love and beauty. Um, some say there were as many as 1,000 temple prostitutes who served the sailors and the, the men who came through at that time. This was back before it was destroyed. Um, it was such uh, a byword, Corinth was, that the word Corinth became a verb for fornication. Imagine if Spokane became known as that. Yeah, it, that's how bad it was. Um, it was dormant, of course, destroyed for 100 years, but when it was reestablished in 44 B.C., they rebuilt the temple of Aphrodite on the, on the hilltop, and it once again became known as a very, very decadent city. Uh, Corinth was on the rise. Athens was de declining. Some people said at this time it was a boom town, almost like uh, uh, San Francisco during the gold rush. When people were just coming in, money. It was the wild, wild west with many, many cultures. So I want to show you... Um, one of the things is uh, the Agora, the place of, uh, of trade, because it became such a, a great place of trade. You see those little stalls. Paul will come to Corinth as a tent maker. Aquila and Priscilla were tent makers. They may very well have actually occupied one of those stalls and paid a, a, a price to sell their tents out of one of those little stalls. But, it, but it, you can see the, it was almost like a mall. There's a pavement, a road in front, and all the little stores where uh, people would, would gather. You see the, um, the, uh, the mountain in the back, and in our next slide, just almost every photo that you look at uh, ancient Corinth has this, <coughs> pardon me, has this mountain in the back. Um, this mountain is, uh, is called the Acrocorinth, and on, it's not there anymore, but on top of the mountain was the temple to Aphrodite. And so that's where the temple prostitutes were. But you also had uh, the temple that we're looking at right, right now is the temple of Apollo. There were temples to Athena, the wife of Zeus, um, Asclepius. Asclepius was a, a, a god of health. And they've actually found uh, in some of the ruins that people would would make fake hands and feet and legs and different parts of the body that were ill, you know, that were broken and needed to be healed, and they would offer those to the god of Asclepius in hopes of being uh, being healed. So you can see it was a very pagan society. Um, they would sacrifice animals. 
later on we're going to see one of the issues that they face in Corinth is, is it okay to, to eat this meat that has been sacrificed to idols and is being sold next to the tent makers in the meat market? Is it okay to do that? And Paul is going to answer some of those questions. Um, <clears throat> also in the area, it became a uh, very cosmopolitan in terms of many languages and, and people from diff- of different nations. Uh, it became a place of theater and music and sports, very similar to our culture today. It was up and coming and, and people from everywhere. Um, right now, the, the, those who want the United States of America to be multicultural, it's okay to have multicultures. But we don't, those who want a multicultural America, they, don't, they want to eschew the, our, uh, our Judeo-Christian roots, and we're supposed to uh, accept every other uh, competing philosophy and every other religion. Actually, that's not the way it works. That's what they say. But we're, there, is a, there is a new cult, there is a new religion that we're supposed to follow. But Corinth was very, very much like our culture today. Very decadent very transient, very much focused on trade, entertainment, very erotic, um, very, very similar to the United States of America. So as we study the, um, the, the problems in Corinth, we're going to see the church as a mirror to us as well. Some of the things that they were facing, uh, we face as well. The church um, was planted by the Apostle Paul. In fact, if you want to just follow along with me and I'll read through um, a bit of chapter 18 in Acts. And it says this, after these things, he, that is Paul, left Athens and went to Corinth. Remember the, the slide we saw where, where Athens was, was to the, the east and Corinth was to the west and he walked 50 miles to Corinth. Why did he go there? He went there because Athens was declining, Cor- Corinth was on the rise Everybody's going there. What a great place to plant a church. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he came to them. So uh, the uh, Aquila and Priscilla, under persecution in Rome, they were told to leave uh, Rome. And so, hey, let's go to Corinth. That's an up-and-coming place, and let's go there, and let's share the gospel as well. And because he was of the same trade, Aquila, he stayed with them, that is Paul rather, he stayed with them and they were working for, by trade, for the, by trade they were tent makers. And again, they might have been in one of those stalls. And he was reasoning in the scriptures every Sabbath and trying to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. This was Paul's MO for planting churches. He would go into a town where there was a population of Jews such that they would that they had a, a, a synagogue, and he could speak their language. They were the worshipers of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He knew the scriptures, and he reasoned with them that Jesus was the Messiah. He always started with the Jews. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Saul and uh, Timothy and and Silas come. He's uh, freed up from some of his tent making. He's got more time to devote to the ministry. And the focus of his ministries to the Jews was to proclaim to them, Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And he reasoned with them from the scriptures. But here's what happened. They resisted 
and they blasphemed. And so Paul shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I'm going to the Gentiles. Not all, but most of the Jews rejected him and his message and his Messiah. And Paul said, fine, your blood's going to be on your own hand. I will go to the Gentiles now and I will preach the gospel to them. But when they resisted, I said, excuse me, then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God whose house was next to the synagogue. Uh, This is a Greek man who was a worshiper of the Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, lived next to the synagogue. And Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and were being baptized. So Paul is preaching to the Gentiles, to the Jews. And even though, for the most part, they have rejected him, the leader of the synagogue and his whole household comes to Christ, and he baptizes this entire household. And we're going to see this in a few weeks where Paul talks about who he baptized and who he didn't baptize. And the Lord said to Paul, this is one of the interesting things in the life of Paul in the book of Acts, um, Christ continues to speak to him and and giving, giving him visions And the Lord, that is the Lord Jesus, said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. He said, Paul, be bold. Don't give up. Don't back down. Keep preaching because my elect are here in this city. And as you preach, they will be the, the, the spirit of God is going to draw them out and the church is going to grow. God, uh, the Lord Jesus gave to Paul assurance of his, of his success in Corinth in, in, in planting this church because many of the elect were going to come to Christ through his ministry. And he, he settled there, Paul did, a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. A year and a half. Paul spent teaching nothing but the word of God, teaching them the Old Testament, teaching them about Messiah, teaching them theology, teaching them about the church, probably raising up leaders. For a year and a half, he spent teaching this brand new church that God was among them. But while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat. Gallio, we know from extra biblical literature, came to Corinth in A.D. 51, and we can precisely pinpoint when this happened in the spring of A.D. 51, and this helps us to, to know uh, when uh, 1 Corinthians was written as well. But there was this, the, the Jews rise up against, the, the, um, against the, the Christians and against Paul, and they bring him to the judgment seat. You've heard that before, the Bema the Bema seat, the judgment seat in Second Corinthians, Paul would say we all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We saw a picture of that. Can we go back to that picture for just a minute? That this is the, the, the judgment seat in Corinth where the proconsul or the magistrate would stand up on the top and whoever was charged with something would stand down below and the proconsul would pronounce judgment. And so Paul was here at this very place, the Bema, the judgment seat. But they bring Paul here. They were saying, this man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, 
If it were a matter of wrong or vicious crimes, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names and your own law, look after yourselves. I'm unwilling to judge on these matters. And he drove them away from the Bema, the judgment seat. Basically, he said, look, you Jews, this is an intramural debate. You're arguing about theology. I don't know any of this stuff. I don't want to have anything to do with it. Just go your own way. And so they took hold of Sosthenes. Sosthenes, we'll see him, and we saw him in, in our scripture reading. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, and Sosthenes, our brother. They took a hold of Sosthenes, who by this time had become the leader of the synagogue, and they began beating him in front of the judgment seat. Um, but Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria, and he went with uh, Priscilla and Aquila in Cancrea. He had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow, and they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. Now he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. After a year and a half and a little bit more time, Paul goes on, and he ends up in um, um, ends up in Ephesus. So the church has been planted. And the church is multicultural, mainly Gentile at this point. There are some rich people. There are some poor people. There are people of different languages. There are people from different colors. There are people um, from all over the world. And you can imagine, it, it sounds like a wonderful idea, but you can imagine those uh, those those cleavages that just naturally occurred between these people. Um, you can see how there would be divisions in the church because there were people from all over the place. We are a heterogeneous uh, group. We're mainly white. We're mainly from about the same social economic stratus. We're all Americans. We're all pretty much from the Northwest. And you, we can't even understand what it would be like to have a church that... that uh, you know, every other row is someone from another country with another language and a different color. And some are poor and some are, are, are rich. You can imagine the, the, the divisions that would play out here. So the background of the issues are these. Paul writes four letters to the Corinthians. Four letters. We only have two. But he mentions four letters he mentions in, uh, in our book, and we'll come to it in chapter 5, he mentioned the former letter. He said, I wrote to you formerly not to associate with immoral people. And I didn't mean this. They misunderstood what he meant. And so that's part of him writing is to correct their misunderstanding of a former letter. They wrote then a letter to him, and he wrote 1 Corinthians. There then Paul has what is called the painful visit where he goes to Corinth. And after that visit, he writes what is often called the severe letter. We don't have that letter. We don't know what happened to it. And then he wrote, <coughs> excuse me, Second Corinthians. So that first and that third letter, we don't know what happened to them, but by God's providence, we don't need them. We have all that we need in the canon of Scripture. So here are some basics of uh, the date and the origin of First Corinthians. The author, of course, is the Apostle Paul. The origin is Ephesus. We know that because in 1 Corinthians 16:8, Paul says, but I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. So he wrote from Ephesus. The date, somewhere around A.D. 54 to 55. Um, 
That's pretty much what most scholars uh, agree upon. The recipients, the church at Corinth, and the occasion, trouble. Trouble. There's division amongst them. There are difficulties in their midst, and there are doctrinal problems as well. And we will play, we'll fill this out as we go along. But Moffat said this, um, one writer, the church was in the world as it had to be, but the world was in the church as it ought not to be. So is it true today. Just as in Corinth, just in, you know, with us, we are in the, in the world as we ought to be, but the world is in us as it ought not to be. That is true of the church at large. It is true of us to a certain extent. And that's what the, uh, the book of 1 Corinthians is going to be about. Paul is going to apply the principles, principles of the gospel that they might be sanctified, that they might learn to live holy lives in the midst of, a, of, a, of an ungodly world. So our overview basically is this. There's the salutation, verses uh, 1 through 9 in chapter 1. We see divisions. There are factions in the church. We see difficult problems in, in chapters uh, 5 through 6. There's some, some really bad things going on. Incest. People are suing one another. There's immorality within the church. And then you have difficult questions in chapters 7 through 14. And we'll see that there, uh, there was a, a group of people that actually came to Paul and say, we've got some questions that we want you to answer. And so he answers these questions, questions about marriage, about divorce, about eating meat sacrificed to idols, about uh, worship and propriety in worship, about communion, about spiritual gifts. And he's going to uh, he's going to address each and every one of these because they have questions about these things. Then chapter 15 is a doctrinal correction about the resurrection. Somehow they've gotten some misinformation about the resurrection of Christ, about the resurrection for them and the order of things, and eschatology will play into this as well. But Paul will correct this in that wonderful chapter of 1 Corinthians 15. I'm glad we have it because it teaches us so much about the resurrection. The conclusion is chapter 16, in which he will talk about the collection of the saints. We'll talk about the offerings of the church, but also he will um, address some people there and say hello to them and goodbye. So with that, let's jump into the first three verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And the first thing we're going to see is the divine call of leaders. The divine call of leaders. And we're going to see the divine call of the Apostle Paul. But this extends, I believe, to all church leaders. And Paul says this in verse 1. Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. We saw him in Acts chapter 18. He was a mighty man because he was beaten and he's sticking with the Apostle Paul. He is probably the amanuensis who Paul um, dictated a letter and Sosthenes probably wrote it down in chapter 16. When we get there, it will be a long time from now, but, but at the very end of the letter, Paul says, I write the greeting with my own hand. So this portion, this greeting of verses 1 through 9, Paul wrote this with his own hand and he says that at the end of the book. 
But he identifies himself as the author of the letter and as an apostle. And though this salutation is typical of Paul writing to the various churches, it's very similar to the other letters, the truths that he presents here are particularly poignant given the problems in the church. We talked about what those problems are a little bit. We know what's ahead, and we're going to get into it. But, uh, for instance, one of the problems is his credentials. They don't believe that he has the authority of an apostle, even though he founded the church. They don't trust him. There is a problem between the apostle Paul and some of the Corinthians. They're questioning his authority. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, they're going to say, yeah, his letters, they're weighty, but in person, he's puny. And his speech is contemptible. He's just a short little guy with a crooked nose, and he can't hardly speak. That's what some of the people thought of him. He was contemptible. And so they're calling into question his authority. But he says, Paul called as an apostle. The word apostle means one who was sent. And remember, Jesus called 12 apostles. He went up on on a mountain. He prayed all night, and he chose the 12 apostles. One of them, Judas, they lost. And Paul is called to apostleship to the same extent by the same Lord. And he has the qualification of of the 12. He will say elsewhere, I am an apostle because I have seen the resurrected Lord. He has the same authority as the 12. He has the, 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 the same calling as the 12. And this apostolic age, which will come to an end once they, once they all die, Paul is part of that and writes most of the New Testament. And still they're questioning his credentials. Notice how he describes himself. Called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God called an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, this is a mouthful, theologically speaking. Because he says he is called. And this is a word that is generally used of the effectual call of Christians to salvation. Here, and in Romans 1, 1, Paul applies it to himself, that God has supernaturally and sovereignly called him to be an apostle. In verse 1, Paul is emphasizing his place as an apostle, which is directed by God, wholly by his sovereign choice, because it is by the will of God. Certainly, Paul is making this point, that his apostleship is not his own work, it's the work of God. Anyone who knew the Apostle Paul, and if you read about the Apostle Paul's conversion in the first service, I kept saying on the road to Emmaus, on the road to Damascus, when Paul was on the road to Damascus, he was not seeking to be an apostle. He was not seeking uh, to to be a leader in the church. He didn't, didn't even desire it. You know why? Because he was an enemy of Jesus Christ and he was an enemy of the church because when Jesus spoke to him on the road to Damascus, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul was undone. Apostleship wasn't something that he was seeking. It wasn't something that he desired. It was the last thing that he wanted And by the sovereign choice of God, he was called to be an apostle. 
They knew that story. Those in, uh, in Corinth knew that story, and they knew him after a year and a half of him leading them to Christ and teaching them the scriptures. So suffice it to say at this point that his credentials as an apostle being called by the will of God is germane to the rest of the book of Corinthians. His authority as an apostle is extremely important. But all, all leaders are called in the same way, I believe. All of us who are leaders, God who is sovereign, God in his providence calls us to be leaders in the church. Paul would say to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, listen to this, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to pastor, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his blood. Elders of Valley Bible Church, the Holy Spirit made you an elder. Just as he did the Ephesian elders, just as he called Paul to be an apostle, this is the sovereign work of God appointing, appointing leaders to lead his church, which he purchased with his own blood. And believe me, I know this. Uh, I think uh, like the Apostle Paul, you know, having been in ministry for decades, if I knew what was ahead, if God showed me, I probably would have said, mm, no thanks. I'm not sure I want that. What would Paul put up with? Shipwreck and beatings and imprisonment and stoning. And if God showed them, showed him all those things before, he would say, you know, can we talk? I mean, give me a couple of days to think about this. That's not the way it works. When you're called, you're called. It is a high calling. And men of Valley Bible Church, I call on you to aspire to be elders. Eldership should be open to any man in the church who meets the qualifications. Yes, it's high, a high calling, and yes, it's difficult, but I call you to aspire to it. <clears throat> Spurgeon, in his lectures to his students, said this, Do not enter the ministry if you can help it. And he went on to say, if any student in this room could be content to be a newspaper editor or a grocer or a farmer or a doctor or a lawyer or a senator or a king in the name of heaven and earth, let him go his way. He is not the man in whom dwells the spirit of God in its fullness. He's not saying uh, putting down those things and saying that you cannot be filled with the spirit for that. He's talking about the calling to ministry. For a man so filled with God would utterly weary of any pursuit, but that for which his utmost, his inmost soul pants. If on the other hand, you can say that for all the wealth of both the Indies, you could not and dare not espouse any other calling so as to be put aside from preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ than depend upon it. If other things be equally satisfactory, you have the signs of this apostleship, not like a Paul, Paul's apostleship, but the apostleship of being called to ministry. We must feel that woe is unto us if we preach not the gospel. The word of God must be unto us as a fire in our bones. Otherwise, if we undertake the ministry, we shall be unhappy in it, shall be unable to bear the self-denials incident of it. 
and shall be of little service to those whom we minister. And the Apostle Paul was that kind of man. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And all that he went through is all that we sometimes go through. Beatings and persecutions and imprisonments and stonings and shipwrecks and other such things. All for the sake of the gospel. Men aspire to that. Aspire to eldership. I encourage you to do so. Okay, second of all, we see the divine call of the saints. We saw the divine call of the Apostle Paul, but we see in verse 2 the divine call of the saints. Verse 2, he says, to the church of God. It is a church that belongs to God, which is at Corinth, he says, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Paul begins a series of important truths that he's going to continue on through verse 9 in this greeting that are all quite positive, really very positive about the Corinthians. And he demonstrates that he is hopeful and he's not judgmental or distrustful of their salvation. Knowing what we know that is ahead, that there is incest in the church, that there are squabbles, that there are people suing one another, that there is immorality in the church, that they are abusing the Lord's Supper to the extent that God is disciplining some of them, even to the the point of death, and still he calls them saints. He calls them saints by calling. He addresses them, even though there there are deep problems in the church. He addresses them as they are in Christ, not according to their problems. He's going to get to that. And he will address their problems, but he addresses them as saints. There's a lesson for us. Beware of jumping to the conclusion that people who disagree with you are not saved. We sometimes do that. If you've ever done that, shake your head. No, 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 we've all done that. I mean, it depends on what they disagree with us about, right? If they disagree about the virgin birth and the, the gospel, yes. But be careful about passing judgment on the salvation of other believers because they don't agree with you on certain matters. There, Paul has a lot of disagreement with the Corinthians. Many, many, many things. And yet he calls them saints because he knows their faith. He knows who they are. In fact, Paul makes the opposite point. They're called. And he demonstrates his great confidence in the calling of the Corinthians in spite of all the problems that they have. He calls them saints. Second of all, the church belongs to God. He says, to the church of God, the church that belongs to to, to God because they have been purchased. They are the church. They are the church of God. That means that they belong to him. And how did this happen? How did they become the church of God? How do we, how did Valley Bible Church become the church of God? The same way the apostle Paul became an apostle, he was called, is the same way that they became the church they were called. 
the sovereign work of God. 1 Corinthians 6.11 says, after listing uh, the, the sins of the many, many sins of the world, he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. No matter where we came from, no matter what our background is, we've been washed, we've been sanctified, we've been justified. A few verses later in verse 19, he says to them and to us, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, that you are not your own, your life is not your own? If your life was your own, guess what? You're going to mess it up. You're going to end up in the ditch on the right and the ditch on the left because you're trying to live it for yourself, but you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. And what is the price? Someone tell me. The, the life and death and blood of Jesus Christ. Absolutely. That is the purchase price by which we become his possession. And he bought us with that price. Therefore, as we live in this body, we glorify God because we are his purchased. Next, we see that the church is set apart to holiness through Jesus Christ. To those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. There's no mention of faith here and how they were sanctified. But we know that this happens by faith. And we know that it is once again the sovereign work of God. I love Ephesians chapter 1. And it says in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Just as he chose us in him. Before the foundation of the world for what purpose? That we would be holy and blameless before him. He chose us to be holy. When? When did that happen? Before there was anything. Before there was the, the universe. He saw you. He chose you to be holy. The, the idea of holiness is the, an essential characteristic of God in which in him there is no darkness, there is no impurity, there is no sin. There, he is totally different from, and distinct from the entire universe. There is no other being like him. He is totally unique. That is the holiness of God, totally pure. And he chooses us before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless in real time this happens when we respond to the gospel because he says in verse 13 of chapter 1 of Ephesians, in him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you are sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. And notice the redemption and possession language. Who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. He chose us before the foundation of the world. In real time, our call happens, our sanctification happens. The moment that we believe in Christ because he put the gospel before us 
and the Spirit drew us to him to believe in him, and our fate is sealed, as it were. God is holy, and he is unique. And here's the interesting thing. He is holy, and he is pure, and in him there is no darkness, and he is totally uh, separate from the entire universe. And it is his holiness that separates us from him. Do Do you see that? Because we are sinful, and he is pure, his holiness is the thing that separates us. But in salvation... It is his holiness that bridges the gap also. It is his holiness that he calls us to. It is his holiness that he calls us to holy ground. And you know that word, hagiadzo or hagios, something that is set apart. And he sets us apart in salvation. He sanctifies us because he calls us out of sin. He calls us out of death. He calls us out of darkness into holiness. The thing that, that separates us brings us to him. It is a one-time act of God, and it is a fact of God that you have been sanctified. You have been set apart from this world. You have been made unique and distinct from where you used to be. And then progressive sanctification is the ongoing work of God, where we cooperate in this process by faith and obedience and more and more and more, he makes us holy and like his son, distinct and unique. So we have been sanctified as a fact and we are being sanctified as a work of the ongoing presence of God in our lives. It's a remarkable thing that he calls these Corinthians saints. Next, we see that we are saints by calling. We are saints by calling, because he says, to those who have been sanctified, past tense in Christ, saints by calling. They became holy ones. Christian, you are a saint by your calling to Christ. Those who are set apart from sin and death and made part of the, the, the kingdom of light. All Christians are saints, not just that they, those they make statues out of or those who perform certain things. So, you know, there's St. Christopher, St. Anthony, St. Francis. They were saints only if they believed in Christ. And they are no more saints than you are. And you are no less saints than they are. Got that? Every one of us are on level ground in Christ. We are all saints by calling. Regardless of how long you've been a Christian, regardless of what you know, regardless of your level of maturity, regardless of the things that you struggle with of sin in your life, you are every bit as much of a saint as St. Francis or any other one who's called a saint. Why? Because it is the work of God and not the work of man. So as saints, we are to live up to our calling. This doesn't mean that we hide behind the name saint. What kind of saint? God made me, sanctified me and set me apart to be a saint. Therefore, I can partake of bad behavior. No, no. Paul is going to make the opposite 
point, if you are a saint by calling, live up to it. Be who you are. Live up to it. And that's the point of the book. The gospel applied to everyday problems. Living up to our calling as saints. Becoming sanctified progressively. Becoming who we are by obedience and faith to him. And the other thing that he says in verse 2 is this. That as saints... We are called to corporate worship because he says, With all who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, we are called to corporate worship. They, sh- they share the same calling as other churches. He doesn't compare them to other churches and say, You know what? You guys need to get it together. No, he includes them with all other saints everywhere because of our calling all who worship the Lord, and that's what it means to call on the name of the Lord, are those who are saints by calling. And we all have equal standing regardless of the problems and the troubles and the difficulties and those things in our lives. And Paul is saying, you, you Corinthians, I know what's going on, but you're no different from any other church. You are saints by calling and you worship him properly. The last thing we see in verse 3 is the divine blessing of grace and peace. Paul says this in just about every one of his letters, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is the basis of our relationship with Christ, isn't it? It is the basis of our relationship with Christ. And he says that to them, grace to you. Paul shows them grace even though they don't deserve it. That's the whole idea of grace, isn't it? That we don't deserve it. And Paul shows them grace, knowing what's going on, knowing all the problems, all the sin, and he is very, very gracious with them. And <coughs> pardon me, and he wishes them more grace. And second of all, peace is the fruit of that grace relationship. As we live out grace, we have peace with God, we have peace with one another. And we have peace with those with whom we are at odds. Again, Paul is very upbeat. He's very encouraging. And everything that he says so far is true of the Corinthians. Everything. Because it is the work of God that he's appealing to. Yes, they're falling down on the job. But everything that he says about them is true. And it is true of you, O Christian, regardless of what you struggle with, regardless of the level of your maturity, regardless of your sanctification, how long you've been a Christian, etc., etc. All these things are true of you as well. So, in conclusion, two things, two simple lessons. You are holy, live like it. That's uh, kind of the, the, the message of, of sanctification in the Bible. You are holy. Live that way. Be who you are. You, you've been called as, as a saint. You have been sanctified. You've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You have all that you need. Live that way. And that's the call of the Christian life. Second of all, as fellow saints treat one another with grace, how has God dealt with you? With grace. 
Should we not deal with one another the same way with which we have been dealt with by God? Absolutely. With grace and by grace. God deals with us in grace and that's how we treat one another. In spite of our imperfections, in spite of our failings, we are to treat one another with grace. That doesn't mean that we don't confront one another. That doesn't mean that we don't practice church discipline. It just means that when we have problems, we, we do what Paul did. We're gracious. We show grace to one another. Brothers and sisters, I want Valley Bible Church to be a grace place. I want this to be a church that is marked by grace, that when we have difficulties and disagreements, that we are gracious to one another. And the basis of finding those solutions is all, all of these things that are true. We've been called as saints. We've been sanctified. We have grace and we have peace given to us. And that is how we relate to one another. With that, we pray. Thank you, Father. <clears throat> For the Apostle Paul's credible beginning to this book, writing to people that are so very, very unspiritual, and yet calling them in the very beginning to the basis of their salvation, and ours as well. May we be people of grace. May we be people of holiness. May we live out who we are in Jesus Christ, sanctified people of the light, people of truth. And would you grant us as we continue and embark upon this study to learn more and more and more of your grace toward us. And would you change us in Christ's name, amen.